Today is the third in this series that I'm doing on the subject of the kingdom of God, and these three talks uh, are based on Derek Morphew's material, uh, a load of it subtracted out and a load more of my stuff added in. And the next time I speak will be in two weeks' time when I'll conclude the series, but I'll leave Derek and move on to some, uh, looking at some of the other outworkings of living kingdom lives as we care for those in need. I would encourage any of you who have missed any of the last two talks to perhaps catch up, watch them online, or listen to the MP3 on our website, because each talk very much builds on the understanding that we've laid down in the previous ones. My hope is that this session will be one, uh, for some of you who, as we've been going through this, it's been quite sort of heady, quite up there, quite theological, and uh, hopefully this will begin to ground it and actually land in your life, and it'll actually explain some stuff that goes on inside of you uh, day to day. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about the people of the kingdom. The people of the kingdom. The old translation, sons of the kingdom. Sons and daughters. Which includes every one of us here who has committed their life to following Jesus. And because of the nature of the kingdom of God, as we've been looking at it, to be born into that kingdom is to become a person of the kingdom, a kingdom person. And in many ways to become like the kingdom itself. And therefore, if the kingdom has certain characteristics, we as Christians who are born into that kingdom begin to live with the same characteristics. And the mystery of the kingdom of God begins to apply to our lives too. So just to quickly recap where we got to so far, we saw that the mystery of the kingdom of God is found in the fact that Jesus taught about the kingdom in various ways. He taught about the kingdom as future to his own time, something that will happen at the very end of history. The kingdom of God will come. He also spoke about the kingdom of God as being now present. It had arrived in his announcement, his demonstration, his signs and wonders in his ministry. He was enacting the inbreaking of this future age, the kingdom of God. He also taught that it was near, that history was pregnant with the very soon arrival at any moment of his kingdom, that it would happen in his generation, but it had not quite arrived yet. And in still other passages, he talked about the delay of the kingdom. And we saw a model where we can put all this together so that the mystery of the kingdom is that it is always simultaneously here, near, delayed, and future, is this, to look at history as a timeline, beginning with creation, Jesus Christ, the end, day of judgment, from which then the future age begins, the new heaven and the new earth. As we come through this, uh, in Jesus in his ministry, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, which released the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, at Jesus, the future age broke in in, that, in those uh, occurrences in the ministry of Jesus. The powers of the future world broke into the present world. And so we have the presence of the future. Or we have to use those long words, inaugurated eschatology. The end has begun. The end has actually broken into the now. And the Christian life is lived in that dimension where for us, two different ages coexist at the same time. Between Jesus' ascension and his return is the last days that we're in, and then the future age. And we live somehow in both of them because that keeps breaking into here. Now, for our friends who don't believe in Jesus, they live in this present world. You know, in that sense, life for them is relatively uncomplicated. They live in one age. We, however, are citizens of both worlds at the same time. 
Two different ages coexist within our experience, and in fact, they compete for supremacy in our hearts every single day. And we experience internally this uh, condition we talked about last time of eschatological tension. And so the phrases we have used to describe this inaugurated eschatology is already and not yet. Is the kingdom of God here already? Yes. Is the kingdom not yet here? Yes. And therefore, we as Christians, the people of the kingdom, are already not yet people. We are already not yet people. We are therefore truly strange beings. And, you know, these things we don't talk about much when we try to communicate the gospel. People hear us saying things like this, come to Jesus, he will solve all your problems, you'll have a wonderful life from then on. Whereas the truth is, come to Jesus and experience the tension of being in this age and the age to come simultaneously. And welcome to the battle zone where the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God are at war all around you and incidentally within you as well. And so some Christians who thought they'd signed up for a relatively easy ride, you know, or they, perhaps they heard something about it being about running a race, they've turned up in their running shoes, they've got their vests on, ready for a bit of a jog there, discover they're on the front line of a battle. And missiles are whizzing past their ear and they're experiencing spiritual warfare and a battle is going on inside them that is just almost impossible to win and they say, why am I experiencing this? And perhaps they have the impression that all the other Christians they know aren't dealing with the daily struggles that they do. The Christian life is a war zone. It is like that inherently because we are people of the kingdom and there is a clash of kingdoms as well as a clash of ages going on. Debbie and I were just talking about this a couple of weeks ago and she came up with, I thought was a brilliant, fresh way of describing this tension of living in two ages at the same time. When she likened living between the times as similar to the experience of being a teenager. A child lives in the age of childhood and life is, of course, relatively simple. An adult lives in a different age, but a teenager lives between the times. And the two ages coexist and they collide in that, child, in that teenager's life. They are still a child, but there are things happening to them which are adult. Adulthood is not yet, but they experience some of the freedoms of adulthood already while still living with the constraints of their childhood. And they're caught experiencing childhood with adulthood breaking in. And it's an uncomfortable time. To be a teenager is about the worst time in a person's life. Strange things are happening to them. Aspects of the future age of adulthood are breaking into the, their experience. And hair is sprouting in new places. And an adult body is emerging and bones are growing longer and there are growing pains and so on. They yearn to be an adult, but they are still in many ways a child. One day they will experience the fullness of that future age of adulthood. But before then, that future age keeps breaking in. And every one of us here over the age of 13 knows what it's like to be a teenager. Exciting things, new things are happening as we live through those adolescent years. But while we yearned to be an adult, we were painfully aware that it was still future for us. Now I'm fairly confident that the experience for most of us this morning will be one of relief and encouragement. It comes as quite a relief if you've been in a war zone that you weren't fully aware of to discover what's going on. Some of you here who have not yet committed your lives to Jesus uh, will find some things I say today not so much making sense to you. But for those of you who know Jesus 
and a longing to serve him, I think today's talk will just pull back a veil on your experience. So just as the kingdom is, so also we are. We are here, almost here, delayed future people. And if you reflect on your Christian experience so far, it's always like that. You know, there are a lot of things where you can say, I've got it. I'm really experiencing it right now. And then there are uh, times in your Christian life, so much of your Christian life, you're waiting in expectation for God to do something at any moment. And then you find to your utter frustration that God is not in as much of a hurry as you are, and he seems to take his time and do these things, and so it's delayed. And then you know that ultimately you're going to be completely transformed. So let me just give you a, a bit more of a biblical basis for this before we get into the personal application. There are a whole lot of verses in the New Testament which we might call the already texts, which indicate we've got it now. It's here. And here's a wonderful verse about conversion, maybe familiar to you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the older translation said, he or she is a new creation. The TNIV says, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. So the old you is gone, you are a brand new person in Jesus Christ. Some of you had an experience which I didn't personally, and that is that you had a thing, a crisis conversion, where you had this experience of accepting Jesus into your life. From that moment, your life has changed, and you can pinpoint the date when that happened. And over the years, you know, we've heard many testimonies here from the stage at baptism services, where the individual's life before conversion included all manner of things which would have been thoroughly alarming to a policeman. And then they came to faith in Jesus and they discovered that their new way of life was suddenly radically different. They found a freedom not to do many of the things before which had been just integral to their behavior. And they also found a new appetite to do good things which before were of no interest. There was a a radical change. The old has gone and the new has come. Yeah, but that's not the whole story, as anyone who's come to faith knows. And we will find also what we might call the not yet texts, as well as the already texts. There's the not yet that say, no, you haven't got it all. Many of them use the language of groaning. For instance, Romans 8, 22, we know, Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And Paul, as he wrote this, was longing for the end of this tension. But while we live in this in-between period where the two ages overlap, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Here's a verse written to first century Christians. It's a, a not yet text which clearly shows they still had a lot of their old life very much alive. This is Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. He's writing to the church and saying, I want you to put these things to death. Now, it may be that you would consider yourself free from anything that's listed here. You never struggle with any of those things. But the Christians in the first century who Paul is writing to, they did. And if we're totally honest, we do today. If there are still things that have to be put to death, 
then clearly the kingdom of God is not completely, has not completely overtaken our life. And so here's a mystery. Paul tells us that we're new creations. The old is gone. At the same time, apparently it hasn't gone. Uh, we need to go on ridding ourselves of greed and evil desires and lust and so on. And so was Paul inconsistent? Was he perhaps writing some passages on a sunny day when he was in a good mood? And other days when he's feeling a bit depressed, he labored the other side of the point. No, what he's doing is expressing this tension. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul describes the daily experience of the Christian life, which has both the realities of what the Bible calls the present evil age and also the realities of the age to come. Now, because of time, I'm not going to unpack his description of life, but if you're interested, if you read 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 to 10... He talks about the reality of life, which is just tough. And then he talks about the other side of it, that by God's grace, we rise rise above that. And so I'll let you read that in your own time. One little phrase in there captures the tension very well for most of us, and that is this. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And he has this whole list of juxtaposed phrases. Sorrowful, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so Christians are the happiest depressed people in the world. (laughs) And the other thing is that as we look through these lists of things with this and this and that they're all contrasting is we may experience both these things sometimes on the same day. You know, maybe you were here last night and just it was a wonderful ministry time with Mike and, and the Spirit of God was moving and maybe in a worship and you were just connecting with God and getting ministered to. Maybe it's on a Sunday this would happen to you and you just receive prayer. Maybe you just get healed of something amazing. You walk out of here praising God, excited about being a person of the kingdom. You're on cloud nine. You get in the car with your spouse and your children if you have them and then you have an almighty argument even on the way home. And you say things that Christians don't say. You think the things that Christians definitely shouldn't think and you know it's not the first time it's happened you just start to think am I really a kingdom person at all you know do I really know Jesus because Christians don't behave like this and the truth is if you've experienced that sort of thing as I have you're just a normal Christian living in the mystery of the kingdom let's just take another uh, angle at this tension one John His short letter there covers both sides of it. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says this. It's pretty clear, isn't it? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Therefore, our lives have sin. So it's not yet. We're not sorted yet. We still have a lot to deal with in our lives. And then if you turn two pages on, you get to 1 John 3, verse 6. John says this. No one who lives in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And you go, ah, which is it, John? A life without sin or life with sin? And and I'm confused because one person in one letter is saying opposing apparently things, apparently opposing things. Derek says that in many recent commentaries, this passage is explained with some sort of reference to inaugurated eschatology, to the already and the not yet of the kingdom. Now, to my mind, the most powerful passage describing this tension in which we live, is found in Romans chapter 7. And it describes Paul's experience of wanting to behave like a proper Christian should, but finding it impossible to get it right the whole time. And it's written in the first person. It's written in the present tense. 
apparently describing his own personal experience. Now, some commentators find what he is describing as somehow inconsistent with the passages which precede it and follow it. And so they've suggested, despite what it says, that it doesn't mean what it means. It doesn't mean what it reads as meaning. And they suggest it must be describing Paul's pre-conversion experience or a young Christian's experience. But the weight of biblical scholars, certainly that I've read, seem to land firmly on it meaning exactly what it says. And what, that it, uh, what it describes is exactly what we're talking about here. It's eschatological tension. Of the four commentaries I read, uh, all of which are written by scholars who are among the most respected theologians of our day, three of the four are clear that Paul is describing his own personal experience. They're John Stott, Charles Cranfield, and F.F. F. Bruce. The other one I read who differs with that view is the Pentecostal theologian Gordon Fee. And I tell you that basically just because this is a chapter which has elicited strong opinions for centuries. It is not crystal clear. And so I want to acknowledge that while letting you know where I've landed on this, that I'm agreeing with the three, John Stott, Charles Cranfield, and F.F. Bruce. And here's what Paul says. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Paul, writing to the Roman church, says this in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Verse 21, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, I want to do good. evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law... But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He's going, ah, I'm so frustrated with myself. You know, I don't want to sin. I try hard not to sin. And what do I end up doing? Sinning. I do those things I ought not to do. And I don't do those things that I ought to do. And so the confession in the Church of England prayer book just in many Anglican churches is used, exactly describes my life when it says, says, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. In his commentary on Romans chapter 7 here, Charles Cranfield talks about the tension with all its real anguish and also all its real hopefulness in which the Christian never ceases to be involved so long as he is living in this present life. So long as he is living in this time until the end, we live with this tension. F.F. Bruce in his commentary talks about this present age and the age to come, and he goes on, quotes, the age to come has already arrived, although the old age has not yet passed away, and he is caught up in the tension between the two. He is like a person living simultaneously on two planes, eagerly longing to lead a life in keeping with the higher plane, but sadly aware of the strength of indwelling sin that keeps on pulling him down to the lower plane. He knew that Christians in general live in two worlds, with the tension that this involves. One day this present order will pass. The new age will be established in glory, and the tension between the two ages will be resolved. But so long as Christians live between the times, their lives provide the battleground for this conflict. 
And he adds that this struggle has been the real experience of too many Christians for the confident assumption to be made that Paul cannot be speaking autobiographically here. John Stott says that there are traits in the Apostle Paul's self-portrait in this paragraph which led the reformers of the 16th century, people like Calvin and most reformed theologians since, quotes, to be sure that these verses are actually the self-portrait of Paul the Christian. He says, this conflict is real, bitter, is, is a real, bitter, unremitting battle in every Christian's experience. His mind simply delighting in God's law and longing to do it but his flesh hostile to it and refusing to submit to it. It is this conflict which leads us repeatedly to utter two apparently contradictory cries. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Verse 24. And thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 25. The first is a cry of despair, he says. The second, a cry of triumph. But both are the exclamations of a mature believer who bemoans his inner corruption of nature and longs for deliverance and who exalts in God through Jesus Christ as the one and only deliverer. Moreover, the deliverance he longs for is not just self-control here and now, it's also the deliverance out of this body of death when he dies and especially when he's clothed with a new and glorious body on the last day. He, the Holy Spirit, is the one who can subdue our flesh now by his spirit And he is the one who on the last day at the resurrection will give us a new body set free from indwelling sin. I think it's fairly clear and I agree with those commentators I've read. The very next thing Paul says in the next two verses which follow that, the last in chapter 7 and the first in chapter 8, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes into chapter 8, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done, he unpacks in dealing with our sin. There's no condemnation. Verse 9, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So chapter 8 is all about victory over sin through God's power. And chapter 7 describes the struggle. John Stott says this, I don't believe the Christian ever in this life passes for good and all out of the one cry into the other out of Romans 7 into Romans 8 out of despair into victory so what's going on do we have victory over sin in the Christian life or do we still have a lot of sin in the Christian life and different texts seem to emphasize different parts of that the point I want to make is that these letters of John and Paul are working out of the framework of the kingdom that we've been studying. And only by going back and looking at the framework of the kingdom do we have a way of understanding what they're driving at. It's quite evident that within us, two ages coexist and collide. And it's the experience of every Christian born into the the kingdom as they become a person of the kingdom. There, There is no Christian who lives outside of that. There never has been, there never will be until the end. And uh, it's the nature of the kingdom. And so it's no use trying to escape this reality and this tension. There will never be a time we can jump out of this dimension of the already and the not yet until the end. And uh, when we get to the end, this dimension will all be resolved. The already and the not yet will be over. But until then, that's where we happen to live. Now, in in the history of Christian theology, 
Because this is such a ah, wrestling tension, there are all sorts of literature and, and spirituality that go off in different directions to try and evade this reality. On one extreme, we have what is called as triumphalism. In this context, that means teachings to the effect that you can so triumph over sin that you don't sin anymore. Even triumph over sickness, that you're never actually ill again and things like that. But that we can become perfectly sin-free in this life. And songs sung in triumphalist churches tend to emphasize the victory, the victory we have in Christ, tend to emphasize the Romans 8 kind of side of the picture with no reference to the struggle. And so they wouldn't have sung songs like we sang this morning, blessed be your name, on the road marked with suffering, yet still we, we live with this and uh, bless your name. Or hold on, again, is a classic song which expresses this struggle. You won't find those songs sung in triumphalist churches because they just want to bang that drum and celebrate all the good things. For all the wonderful things John Wesley wrote, I'm told he also wrote a book called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, which is reckoned by many to not be a very plain account at all. And uh, he apparently said that we can, through an experience of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, we can be totally free from sin. From the point of that experience onwards, we don't sin anymore. We may make some mistakes, but apparently sin has gone. Now those sorts of teachings don't really help us because they simply don't give us reality. There's too great a swing towards the already, that the kingdom is fully here and therefore we can be perfect. On the other end of the spectrum, we have defeatism, which teaches the idea that the Christian life is largely defeat until Christ returns. You get saved and forgiven of your sin, but don't expect God to transform your life. You know, Don't expect to see any healings or miracles or expect the gospel to triumph in any great way in society. You know, We're just going to be this little shrinking band of people who, while the rest of the world just gets worse and worse, we're just going to hold on, cling on, just hold on to Jesus and hope that we can make it. And that's a very sad kind of view of Christianity, uh, Christian faith, is way too much emphasizing the not yet. We don't want to veer towards triumphalism nor defeatism. The truth lies in the mystery of the tension of the already and the not yet. And in Derek's book, Breakthrough, he writes this, understanding the tension of the kingdom is essential to measure truth. Any teaching that tries to evade either the already or the not yet runs counter to the balance of scripture. And doctrine always has an outworking in life. A defeatist emphasis will produce defeated Christians. A triumphalist approach will produce unreal people who live in a spiritual bubble, or worse, an arrogance and fanaticism that brings the name of Jesus into disrepute. So either defeated Christians or unreal Christians. And we don't want to be either of those. We do well to live in the reality of this tension. None of us is fully sanctified. We all sin regularly. If we're pressing into our relationship with God, his spirit will be working in our lives in all sorts of ways to make us more like Jesus. And what we can't do in our own strength in resisting sin, he enables us increasingly to do in his strength. And just as we said last time, the reality of the already and the not yet does not mean that we content ourselves with the thought, you know, oh, well, it's, it's the not yet. I'm not healed, and uh, I might as well give up receiving prayer. I just accept that God hasn't healed me. He probably won't. And kind of just resign ourselves to the not yet. This understanding we've looked at over these weeks of inaugurated eschatology 
helps us to reconcile the fact that not everyone will get healed in this life. And we don't need to blame anyone for lack of faith or sin or anything else. But we are to press in, to seek all the time to see what the Father is doing and go with him when he prompts us to confront sickness with his authority. So just because it's not fully here, we don't back off from pressing in because the kingdom can break in powerfully. The dead can be raised at any moment if the kingdom breaks in. And likewise, with sin, we mustn't find in what we're talking about today any sense of resignation. You know, oh, well, I'm a not yet person. Every Christian sins, even the pastor sins. You know, God understands, and so I needn't struggle, I needn't fight temptation. On the contrary, we are to fully engage with the struggle. Hebrews 12, verse 4, talks about your struggle against sin. 1 Peter 1, 14, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Never let go of that desire to press into being holy. In Peter's second letter, he says four times, Make every effort, the most relevant here being 2 Peter 3.14, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So we we struggle. Great news is we don't struggle alone. Colossians 1.29, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. We struggle all right. But we do so not in our own strength, we actually struggle with his strength, the power of his spirit working in our lives. Philippians 2, another interesting one, verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We work out our salvation, we live the life of a disciple, but it is God's work uh, working that sanctification in us to achieve that. So with God's help, we are hopefully growing in holiness. Having said that, this understanding of our being already and not yet people gives us permission to come out of hiding and to actually be real with each other. 14 years ago, and some of you will have heard the, heard the recordings, the Vision of Valley's recordings, I talked about a church, building a church where it is safe to be real, where people don't feel the need to put on an act around church people of being victorious all the time, of of coming to church with their masks on, with a happy smiling face when they're desperately sad, or triumphing when we're actually struggling. In a church climate where it's all victory, it's all triumph, it's very hard to admit it when life is tough, very hard to admit it when we're desperately struggling. And that can so easily lead to non-authentic Christians. In public... They look like they have it all together. They have their Sunday best on. They've turned up. They're victorious. Praise the Lord. And then they go home and they live a separate life, another life. We all need places. We all need relationships where we can be honest about our lives. We don't have to go into despair about the fact that we're struggling in some area because, after all, God is the person who created this mystery, the mystery of the already and the not yet. In his wisdom, he set up an environment in which this world is still with us. The next world has already begun, And we are those who have to live in the middle of this dimension. And that is why we're very strange beings. And when we manifest the fact that we are like mixed up teenagers, with the old us and the new us in conflict, God isn't at all phased by what we're going through there. His love is undiminished because he actually understands this dimension far better than we do because he set it up. 
He knows that he will triumph in our lives. He has far more confidence of what he's doing in our lives, actually, than we do when we're in the midst of it. Now, you might think that the more mature one gets as a Christian, the less aware you would be with, about this struggle with sin. And on one level, that's true. On one level, God's work in our lives is transforming us to become more like Jesus. And as a result, as we grow in maturity, things which once had power over us no longer do. We find great freedom from things that once bound us. But on the other hand, our awareness of sin gets heightened. And uh, so that while we recognize that things which once tempted us may no longer have room in our lives, our conscience is now more heightened in its awareness of our shortcomings. And so we never graduate to a place where we are content. As John Stott says, uh, Romans 7, which we looked at earlier, it's the cry of a mature believer, more than even a young believer. It's the cry of a mature believer. Early on in our relationship with Jesus, we may actually feel fine about doing things which we did as non-Christians. We never saw them as an issue. We've started our Christian faith. We're a couple of years in. We didn't realize you weren't supposed to do that and that. Oh, and slowly the Lord is changing us. As we grow, the Lord points out that he's not happy about that and he encourages us to change. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we will hate the sin that is still unresolved in our life because as we grow in grace, our conscience is increasingly sensitized to offending the Holy Spirit and our consciences will no longer allow us certain things they would have allowed us you know, previously. The closer we get to the light, the brighter the light becomes and the more it shows up the dark corners of our lives. The more we know of God, the more we want to serve God, the more disturbed we come, we become about what still remains unresolved within us. And that cry of frustration of Paul's in Romans 7 becomes ours, you know. I don't understand myself. I want to do what's good, but I don't seem able to. I don't do the good I want to do. I find myself doing what I don't want to do. What a wretched person I am. And I, like perhaps some of you, I don't know if anyone else, but perhaps I'm alone, have found myself there many times. You know, The more I grow as a follower of Jesus, the more acutely I feel that. There was a time when I could do things which my conscience won't now allow me to do. But at the time, I wasn't in the least bothered. My spirit wasn't churned up about that. You know, I'm, but now I find myself getting upset with myself. More often, probably. I feel it more acutely. I'm in a conversation which just drifts to speaking badly about someone who's not present. And I let slip some unnecessarily, you know, something unnecessarily gossipy. Just drop that juicy morsel of information which gets the laugh I want or puts them down, this other person, in a careless way. And even as I'm saying it, my conscience is trying to stop me. And I'm weighing up whether it's worth it. You know, and then I, I, I say it and, uh, and then I feel terrible and I'm just gutted at myself and, and I'm just saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. I wish I could get those words back. And sometimes I have to go back and apologize to the person I was in the conversation with and just you know, say, oh, I want to undo that. Or I'm watching television and the program that I'm watching crosses a line of what is right for me to be watching. And I find myself staying with it a bit longer before I then turn it over. And as I go to bed, I can't get to sleep because my conscience accuses me. You idiot. When will you learn to flee stuff like that as soon as you see it? You know, you should have switched that channel sooner. You shouldn't have watched that. Why didn't you resist temptation? Or perhaps I have done well in some area. You know, I've excelled 
uh, perhaps in a season, you know, something like a spiritual discipline. I'm really feeling good about myself, you know. And then I find suddenly it rises up, I want people to know. I'm not even going to tell the things as examples because it would just play straight into that, that situation, you see. But I find myself, you know, filling up with pride. I think I feel rather special. And not at all like those lesser Christians who can't get it all together in these areas, you know. I find myself feeling self-righteous. And then I realize what I'm doing. And I'm horrified at my attitude. And so with the Apostle Paul, I groan. And I say, God, I can't wait for the day when you will finally transform my nature so that every single part of me will want what you want. Am I alone? Anybody else? While we live in this tension, we can be confident that God is at work in our lives. To the members of the Philippian church, Paul wrote this, that he was confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, we all are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And uh, so he's involved in the process. It's good news here on out. It's good news having accepted that we live in this tension. So as I finish, what can we do to press in to the process, this process of transformation, the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in our life? Well, four things very quickly. First of all, we need to actively avail ourselves of the means of grace provided for us. Becoming uh, someone who behaves like a proper Christian is not a function of striving and striving in our own strength to do that. Indirect effort is what we need to do. Invest in things which produce a different result, exactly as I said in the Abundant Life series last term, cause and effect. And so spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible, spending time in prayer, in worship, fasting, a whole variety of other things, that, that indirect effort creates channels for his grace. And before we know it, we're, we're cooperating with the work of transformation and we're finding things are dropping off our lives that we never actually had to fight. They just kind of happen. Secondly, make sure we're open to the work of the Holy Spirit. When we're together and when we're apart, but during worship, when we're receiving prayer, and if you've never come up the front and received prayer, I'd encourage you to break that habit of not doing it. Just, just come and surrender to God uh, and allow him to touch us and change us. There are many people here who've had extraordinary, extraordinary experiences of God's transforming power at various parts of the church, but certainly on this carpet here. I think of someone who was telling uh, me and a few friends just on Friday night about his story. He came up to the carpet with a 200-pound-a-day cocaine habit, and he turned around completely free, utterly free of that addiction. Uh, there are many, many stories like that. The power of God to transform is way more. You know, What is done in a moment is so much more than what would take uh, perhaps months of struggle. Thirdly, share your life with others. Share your victories, but also share your failures. Failures. Develop real, authentic relationships with other believers. And don't pretend. Don't pretend you've got it all together because none of us has. And lastly, give yourself to serving God without feeling disqualified. Don't wait until your life is completely sorted out uh, and don't allow Satan's accusations to discourage you you know you may be thinking even right now it's all very well but if people only knew what I'm really like they wouldn't accept me that all these Christians around you this morning are pretty much sorted you're you're actually the odd one out struggling secretly with issues of sin everyone else is immune to it's just not true none of us has it all together 
So by all means, talk to someone about that area of sin you're struggling to overcome. By all means, repent and strive to put it to death. But don't wait until you're totally victorious before getting stuck into serving God. Or you never will. You are an already not yet person. You are a strange being living in two ages at the same time. You have warfare happening with you. You have triumph and you have defeat that are somehow going to be with you all the way through. You are a normal Christian. Come as you are, mixed up as you are, with all your depressed joy, and say, God, I, I give you what, who I am, with all my failings. That will position you in a place of transformation. And, uh, you know, the enemy's greatest weapon against us is condemnation and accusation. And as Mike said yesterday, he's the li- a liar and the father of lies. He's the best liar, probably, in the universe. And he'll, there's truth in his accusations, but if we allow him just to debilitate us because of that, then uh, he's going to mess our life up. When the Holy Spirit convicts, and he does, it is sharp and to the point. You can do something about it in a way that Satan's accusations often you can't. And then the work of the Holy Spirit is empowering and releasing and encouraging. We want to be a church where the environment is completely honest about the nature of the kingdom and is enormously encouraging to the people of God. A place where it is safe to be real and to support each other as we struggle, as we succeed, as we fail, as we make every effort, and as we cooperate, cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Shall we stand?